Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, blow up the lecture. And I stress it's got a question mark at the end of the sentence. I'm, I'm very glad to confirm that. I've had a few inquiries this week about whether the lecture has suddenly been cancelled at ANU. On my experience last week, there was no sign of that. In fact, we had a number of courses and classes where the lecture theatres, as you'd expect at this time of year, were way too small and there was way too much enthusiasm. By week three, I expect, though, the situation will be different. What we're here to do is to kick off a series that'll run through ANU this year, which is really about the future of the lecture. We could talk about the death of the lecture. We could talk about detonate or recreate, redesign, remove. These are all opportunities for us because it should be an open question. The lecture is at least 700 years old. It's been going on for a bit of a while. And it's a good time to stop and think about it because we've probably got now more information sources to tell us how's it going than we did ever before. Now, it's a question that I have opinions on, but I thought it would be a better idea to get a few people to start the whole series and to get us thinking across the university about this question. So I'm very pleased to introduce you today to a panel format, which we're going to, we're going to kickstart our discussion. To my right here, I've got Anand Agarwal, who's the CEO of edX, and ANU is a proud member of edX. And uh, he's just lectured this morning at the University's Australia conference. edX is, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a kind of platform that, and a consortium of massive open online courses, which was uh, started by MIT and then Harvard. And it's got over 30 universities from around the world now. This is, I think this is your fifth startup, isn't it? his fifth startup, and this is his first not-for-profit startup. So this is an interesting space for Anand. He's gone from technology startups to now having a startup where he has around 3 million students at any one time. So welcome to Anand. Then back to my left over here, we have Professor Walker, who is the acting dean of the College of the Asia Pacific. His work is on uh, uh, Thailand. He's actually one of our biggest bloggers in the university. The new Mandela blog is, is consumed by a lot of people around the world. But many of you will also know Andrew is the progenitor of the lecture on how not to lecture last year. He gave us all advice on how to produce terrible PowerPoint. And his blog on The Bachelor went viral earlier this year as well. So Andrew's a bit of a dark horse, I think, on the panel. Just to his right is Inga Mewburn, Dr. Inga Mewburn, who is otherwise known as the thesis whisperer. And uh, people ask to, for me to explain what the thesis whisperer is, and I say, I wish Inga had been around when I was a PhD student, a desperately sad, lonely, humanities PhD student with nobody to talk to. Inga has discovered blogging, new media, Twitter, and social media to help PhD students to feel connected, to crowdsource, and to find solutions to problems. And in fact, she was crowdsourcing her contribution this morning, so I hope she will give credit to her contribution today. Next to her is Dr. Paul Francis, and Paul has been really at the, the pointy edge of our MOOC creation for edX. He and Brian Schmidt have been creating what will be the first of four MOOCs on astrophysics. And so Paul's been there, uh, and he's probably got a few scars along the way, uh, experiencing recreating the lecture for a MOOC and not just for classroom consumption. And then finally to my right, Cam Wilson, who is the president of ANUSA, our Undergraduate Students Association. <laughs> and Cam, it's always a pleasure to talk to students. My favourite question is, what speed do you listen to the lectures on? <laughs> Oh, at least 1.6. 1.6. Mm. The average is 2, 2.5. The record is 15. So if anybody <laughs> has got anything higher than that, you come and tell me afterwards, but don't name any names. <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of our panel panellists to give you about five minutes on the topic, and then I'm going to open up for questions. If your questions are insufficiently provocative, I might do to get in there and stir things up. So I hope that you will join in. We do have microphones here. Uh, along the way, because we're trying to get, get out there and encourage people to participate in the session beyond this physical place, 
please, if you're tweeting, could you please use the ANU hashtag and get the word out there? And probably Inga will be tweeting as she goes, as she talks. So that'd be really, really good. We also will be podcasting the event. So like Cam, you'll be able to download it, listen on two speed. Uh, re-listen to it, pause it, rewind it, go over it, and over and over and over again, as many times as you like. Without further ado, I'm going to pass to Professor Andrew Walker, our first panellist. Thank you very much, Marnie. Um, I've never had a start-up, but I was described as an upstart once. So, <laughs> uh, that's as close as I got. Look, I want to talk about the, the future of the lecture in, in quite a serious manner, and I want to link it to the vision that we've been trying to achieve in the College of Asia and the Pacific, and that is, to put it in a nutshell, what I've called attempting to create a content-rich ecology. Content-rich ecology. And put very simply, that's about producing all sorts of content to use in all sorts of ways. Now, of course, the classic academic forms of content are the journal article and the lecture, and I'm sure they've got a very long life ahead of them, no question about that. But now what we have is an enormous range of readily accessible options for, for creating, sharing, collaborating, commenting on content. And we've got videos, we've got podcasts, we've got blog posts, opinion pieces in the media, tweets, web pages, Facebook entries, images, Snapchats, interviews, all sorts of ways in which we, we can produce and share content. And of course what we do here is part of the, that vast online ecology of the internet itself. So we're an embedded ecology in a, in a much broader and much richer ecology. Now my view is, is thinking of academic life in terms of this content-rich ecology starts to break down some pretty important distinctions at universities. First of all, it starts to break down the distinction between, the classic distinction between research, education and outreach. So is a blog post a, a research output or is it a research input? Um, is it a contribution to curriculum? Or is it even an assessment task that might be written within a curriculum? Um, or is it a form of outreach? I think it can be all three. Also breaks down the distinction between inside the uni and, and outside. Um, we, we, we are persistent in our efforts to hide a lot of our material behind firewalls and, and passwords and logins and things like that. But, but gradually as we develop this ecology, we are breaking down some of that inside-outside distinction. And I also think it starts to break down, perhaps most excitingly, um, some of the distinction between teacher and student, where we can start to become um, collaborators in the production and sharing and talking about content. So that's all very general. What does this mean for the lecture? Um, I want to say in particular what I think it means for the lecturer. And here, let me emphasise that I see this as offering us options. These are additional options that people may choose to draw upon or not. But I think what it opens the way is for the lecturer to become a guide and curator to a diverse type, a diverse range of material that's assembled for the purpose of the curriculum. So the lecturer as guide and curator and the lecturer as a curated collection of objects drawn from the content-rich ecology in which we now work. And that might be content from produced within the university or even content produced outside it. So that, that's my general vision of, of what the lecture can become. Let me just give four examples to make that a little bit more specific. First, what about the 10-minute lecture? 
Um, the 10 minute video lecture is something I used a lot in, in the course I ran last year. The 10 minute pre-recorded video lecture can be a lot of fun recording it. I recorded one up on Black Mountain. I recorded one in the legal graffiti site underpass out on Barry Drive, um, demonstrating different points about power and regulation. Now these lectures to me are less focused on content, but much more on providing students with a roadmap or an orientation to the broader array of material that's assembled for, for that particular aspect of the curriculum. That's the first idea. The second is the YouTube guest lecture. You don't have to go around the corridors knocking on the doors of your colleagues, forlornly asking them if they can get a guest lecture, give a guest lecture for you. Um, Google is your friend. Go to YouTube. You will find an enormous array of material. I had to present a lecture um, in my course last year on some aspects of Islam, not something I'm particularly expert on, wasn't very happy with the material I was producing, got onto YouTube, found some absolutely wonderful material that performed a wonderful basis for discussion in tutorials and seminars that followed. So the YouTube lecture. And what about the Twitter lecture? Um, what, a, what a great way to introduce a, a series of concepts to students then through the bite-size um, medium of Twitter with links to other objects, to readings, to images, to videos. Um, we ran one of our lectures last year as a week-long Twitter feed um, with a particular hashtag that students can follow. Um, I've got over 4,000 Twitter followers. That's a pretty exciting, um, a pretty shambolic world in which you can embed a lecture and expose students to all sorts of wondrous discussion. So the Twitter lecture. Um, and my absolute favourite, the friend of all academics, must surely be the student-created lecture. Uh, provide students with uh, a, a bunch of material, a number of different objects, links, images, whatever, provide them with a general orientation, get them into groups within seminars and say, over to you, produce the lecture. And for me that worked a couple of times enormously effectively where students over a two to three hour seminar um, spent an hour or so preparing lectures and then delivering them to each other. Um, once again, the friend of the academic, the student created lecture. So I don't see any death of the lecture here, but I see a great flourishing, a great excitement for the lecture as new technology and new thinking liberates both lecturers and students to create, curate, share and collaborate on material in any new ways. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pass now to Inga Mewburn. Uh, thanks, Marnie. I don't know if I'm on. Yeah, you're on. on. Okay. Um, yeah, I was very interested in getting an invitation to this um, this forum today because last year um, I was commuting to ANU and uh, sleeping in student digs. And if you've ever done that, you'll know that it tends to be a little bit rowdy. Um, and I sometimes found it hard to go to sleep. And so what I actually latched onto was listening to podcast lectures. Um, in the, of the evenings, I'd listen to things like medieval history and Greek history. And what I found these are really great for was to go to sleep. <laughs> they actually became, for me, a form of sleeping pill. Um, I, even if I was really, really interested in the topic, I just couldn't fight my eyelids closing because I think I'm used to a bedtime story from my youth and we're all sort of trained to, to listen. Um, and um, and that's, that's valuable and important to us, but it can be dull. And um, so uh, the lectures are much maligned academic creature, of course, and I actually find it quite interesting that the way that we criticise the lecture is often to give a lecture. 
So I think we need to think about the persistence of the lecture. Why, why do we keep doing it? Why, what is it about this sort of academic technology, if you like, that, that's so useful? And if you look up the Oxford definition of lecture, you get two definitions. You get educational talk, so far so good. And the other one you get is a long, serious speech usually given as a scolding. Um, and that speaks to the idea of the sort of power and knowledge and power, which, you know, if you're familiar with Foucault's work, of course, says that you can never consider knowledge and power to be separate. Okay, so <clears throat> I then thought yesterday, well, I'll do what I always do when I've got to do something like this. I'm going to get on Twitter. I'm going to ask other people what they think. So I said on Twitter, what do you reckon, people? Why, why do you think um, the lecture is still so persistent? Well, people sent me all sorts of lists. Someone curated me a scooped site so he could just bunt pop a bunch of uh, things there. I ended up writing up these notes and I put them in my Evernote and then I tweeted them and then people gave me more stuff. So I've actually got much more than I could ever talk about in five minutes. But there were four or five things that I think came through that discussion quite clearly. First of all, the lecture is quite an adaptable technology. It's expanded to encompass things like PowerPoint, things like YouTube, things like PowerPoint. In fact, it's very fuzziness. It's, it's very indefinable kind of format. Um, is its very strength. It's easy to deploy and it's easy to do. And it fits, as I sort of said initially, into our tendency to want to listen to stories. Um, I think for the lecturers, it allows you to um, work in real time and get feedback from the audience's faces. I can't really see your faces today, but that frisson of, of having the live audience in front of you to give you feedback is really important. This morning I ran an NVivo lecture and there were 62 people online and there were 25 people in the room and the lecturer was in the States and it was very difficult for her to maintain um, that kind of teacher face without seeing the people in front of them. And I think lastly, the university rooms are often designed implicitly for lectures and to work against this is actually quite difficult. And conversely, when we design new spaces for other forms of teaching, people try to lecture in them and then complain about them because they don't work for lecturing. And in fact, at my last institution, RMIT, they had a big project to train teachers how to use rooms that weren't designed for lecturing because when they got in there, they got all confused about what they should do. Um, and so if we think then about the future of the lecture, just to conclude very briefly, if we think about how the lecture started in medieval times, it really started as a form of reading aloud from books in order that the books were rare, as you know, they often had chains on them, they were chained in libraries. So the notes that the students took actually served as a form of translation or transcribing of the very rare source of print. So that students were a kind of mass photocopier, which is a really interesting way to think about it. And as time went on and, um, and the printing press became available, there became a crisis about the fact that students were doing this. And it's very interesting to note that in the 18th century, there was a similar moment of crisis about the lecture that we're having today, where several governments moved to actually ban dictation, um, because they thought that that was making texts that were really confusing. And recently, I talked to, um, to a student who was working in China who told me that it's really quite common in China for PhD students and, and even postdocs to listen to lectures in English and to transcribe it and to publish it as a paper under their own name. So that, uh, that process of transcribing, transcription, preserving knowledge and translating is continuing into the present day. So I don't think the lecture's going anywhere soon. I think that Andrew's exactly right that we've got this rich content universe within to, to draw from. And I think the idea of the teacher as a curator is a really powerful one. Although I think that some of my colleagues um, have some trouble with that concept in terms of how it troubles the authority of the teacher. Okay, 
Thank you. I'm going to go now to Paul, who, of course, has been uh, driving one of our first MOOCs, which will be released in three weeks' time. So, Paul. <coughs> okay. Uh, I guess I started off three or four years ago as a skeptic about online courses. Um, in the, what's converted me, so now I'm the zealot of, of it, a convert, has been the experience of teaching the big first-year physics course here at ANU with enrollment of about 300 students, which is a, a very much a, a mixed course, like most courses at ANU, with a combination of online and face-to-face -face materials, and trying to be very hard-nosed about measuring the effectiveness of the different parts of the, the course. For example, we test students when they come in and again when they leave on their concepts of physics, and we look at how much difference we make. And when we were doing traditional lectures, that figure was very depressing. We were fixing about 20% of the misconceptions they had. When we went over to still a lecture format, as we talked about the very flexible lectures, but where we actually stop the lecture every five or 10 minutes and have question and discussion, um, uh, we're now fixing 65% of the misconceptions, which is yeah, a factor of three improvement. Um, Another issue, we've been trying for years to try and persuade our students to solve physics problems with a sensible problem-solving strategy. They have a very bad strategy they've been taught, especially at the more expensive private schools in Victoria, um, which, is very good, which is very good for getting very high scores and totally unambiguous, perfectly well-defined um, exam questions, but it's actually useless in the real world. And we tried tutorials. We especially trained the tutors to help them. That's a one on 16, so very expensive to run. Made no difference. We built it into the marking criteria made no difference. I talked about it in lectures, made no difference. I posted a webcast of me solving a problem on my tablet um, using the right strategy, and suddenly the fraction of students showing the proper thing in the final exam went from under 5% to over 60%. I don't know why. What's something about watching a video worked example, I, I, I still don't understand why, I mean, I, but it does seem to be unbelievably effective. Uh, and time after time, I seem to be finding the same stuff. It's not so much that the uh, I previously thought of online stuff as sort of inferior substitute to face-to-face -face lectures, which is good for students who can't actually get to a lecture theatre because they're in a third-world country or a rural area or working or something like that. But every time I actually try and measure the effectiveness of conventional teaching against online, the online teaching comes out higher. For example, we have some homework assignments that the students write on paper, hand into their tutors, get it marked, full of very rich feedback that comes back to them. And there's homework where the students type it in, put the numerical answer or the equation in a box, press the button and get an answer right away. Far less rich feedback. You ask the students which they think they learn from more, and the vote's overwhelmingly in favor of the online assessment, uh, because it's instant. While they're still worrying about the question, they can try it, and they, it, it give them a hint or something like this. Whereas if you give it handed back from their tutors, it's typically a week or two later, at which point they've completely moved on, they've lost interest. Every lecturer in physics has this huge pile of things they've tried to give to hand back that have never been collected by the students. Um, you should see the piles we've got in our first year physics lab. It's like mountains of paper of unhanded assignments that no one's ever bothered to pick up again afterwards. <laughs> um, I was running a panel discussion in science, and we asked all the academics and the students um, what was good about lectures, and all the academics said, well, it's, online stuff can never compensate for the rich to and fro, the discussion, the interactivity of... A, uh, a lecture, ask all the students and say, lectures can never compensate for the rich discussion and to and fro of an online bulletin board. Uh, <laughs> the student's point of view was that in a face-to-face -face class discussion, there are those two or three loudmouths down the front who monopolize everything, and most people are sitting there in stunned silence, whereas all the shy people in the bulletin board, they can take their time, they can think, they can put their answer around, and a much larger fraction of the class actually responds. Um, 
So at the moment, my worry is I'm, I'm probably in favor of a, still a hybrid model where you combine um, some sort of in-class stuff and online stuff. Uh, the trouble is I look at all the different aspects of the course, and for every one at the moment, it's best I can measure online outperforms um, the face-to-face. So I'm not quite clear I've yet identified anything where face-to-face outperforms it. I, many things I thought face-to-face outperformed it when I actually try and measure the actual learning outcomes, in almost every case online wins, which is a bit worrying. I'm going to go now to Cam. <laughs> so um, picture this. Last year I decided to do... A, I wanted to learn about something that's outside my, uh, my faculty. So I do politics and psychology. And so I wanted to go to one of the first-year science courses and learn a bit about it. Um, this isn't yours, Paul. Um, and so I, I turned up. I'm a, I was a fifth year then, so I was 21. And I sat in the class amongst some fresh 18-year-olds ready to learn. And I sat down and then received 60 minutes of droning from, with <laughs> excerpts from the course guide. Um, and that was my first exposure to this course. And for many people, their first exposure to university. Um, not only um, was this like, what they thought they could have, but they actually clapped afterwards. So they <laughs> thought that this was the pinnacle of university teaching. So I continued to go on because I wanted to learn about this course. Um, and I stuck around. And as although the material turned from administration to actually what the course was about, um, I noticed that laptops started <laughs> popping up more and more. There seemed to be more unrelated things on the screens. And I probably, I probably lasted maybe three weeks. Yeah, three weeks before I decided to ditch it. And I actually followed it up later on with, um, I started learning from the Khan Academy. Am I allowed to say that? The, okay, I learned from a, another online source. Um, he actually was his student. Actually, Sal Khan was my student. Oh, great, well then, all credit to you. We learned him good. Oh, good, yeah, <laughs> good learning. Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm a second-hand disciple of you, um, and that I followed on the course, and actually learned quite a lot about that through that. And kind of what it showed me was that, you know, well, there, there are a lot of great lectures at ANU and around the place, but as well, there still seems to be this, uh, like, subscription, this belief um, in the way that lectures are. So I kind of thought about what is a lecture to students. It's, um, it's learning, so obviously it's information dissemination in a mass format. It's interaction. You get to talk with the lecturer back and forth, um, and it's community. You're surrounded by a community of students who think the kind of same things, are in the same kind of places, have the same kind of problems. But in all of those, there are, there are ways that I, I think that the lecture can be improved. Although there's learning information, it's definitely not at, at your pace, um, whatever your pace may be. Um, it's not at your convenience. With interaction, I mean, there is a bit of interaction, but like we heard um, before, it's, uh, it's usually limited to a few people in the class. And I wouldn't say a true interaction. And community, although there is a community of people, a lot of the time it's just a passive being around each other, not a whole lot of interaction. On top of that, lectures. Uh, can be rigid. They're kind of, their format at the moment is bound by things like timetabling, which shouldn't be the reasons uh, about how we learn. And also they can be boring. And I think that the, the talk of you know, speeding them up to 1.6, two times, whatever, isn't a show that people are necessarily bored by the content material, but they're keen for more. So what are, I, I did a bit of research in edX, and I have had a look at it before, and I, I kind of weighed up, you know, what are the real benefits for students? Um, and, and how does it help with, you know, changing the lecture? So, I mean, there's a huge issue of access. Uh, in my students' association, I deal with a lot of uh, less privileged groups, from people who are limited in mobility to people from lower, lower socioeconomic backgrounds to even people in unfortunate life conditions, which means they just don't have the privilege of actually being at university. 
There's also the benefit of, of being around the best and being exposed to the best. So I know we're lucky at ANU. In fact, the other day I ran into um, Brian Schmidt, the Nobel Prize winner, had a chat with him, told him how he looks exactly like my ex-girlfriend's dad, and kind of went in our ways. <laughs> this is an experience that you can only have in that format at ANU. But I think that MOOCs and edX seems to open that up to more students in a way that they can be exposed to the best that there are. It's, it helps out with convenience, of course, um, students, I mean, you'll hear about how we all have poor attention span these days and etc. But I think one real benefit is that it opens it up to learning in different kind of ways. And so, I mean, there's the simple thing like maybe you work better at night, maybe you work better during the day. Maybe you want to learn slowly and stop and have chance to practice. Maybe you want to learn in groups. With something like this, there's the flexibility in that, um, that lectures don't currently offer. And I think also it does a great job of showing us off. So, I mean, ANU particularly, I think, is an amazing university. We have exceptional uh, research, and we are a research-led education um, organisation. So I think that being able to show this off and give other people exposure to it, but as well, as well advertising what we have here is a really great thing. So I guess what does it mean for students today, and what does it mean for students here at ANU? Um, it's a great supplement to what we have here. I was able to learn about things that I wouldn't be able to enrol in otherwise, and that was amazing for me. I think it, it shows that lectures can be changed, and I'd like to see that follow through with more stuff in the university and how we're actually taught our lectures for our courses at the moment. Um, it shows you the best from around, so like I said before, interactions with Brian Schmidt. But as someone who is always going to be uh, limited by geography, it allows me to learn from the best. I can go and do computer science from Harvard. I think there's a whole variety of options that I couldn't just do at the moment. Of course, there are like, concerns and that, I mean, People always worry about implementation. We're worried that you know, the best professors are going to be stolen and just be used online and students want to have interaction. But it seems to be working well so far. And it presents new challenges as well. Um, personally, I'm having a bit of an identity crisis because I'm a representative of undergraduates. But when we have, what, 150,000 people sign up for courses, um, it will certainly increase my constituents. <laughs> um, to, finish, to finish up, um, I think in a, like in a broad sense, students are looking for more. And I think sometimes that people feel like the lower numbers in lectures and that kind of things is uh, an apathy. But I just think it's not necessarily an apathy about education, but about apathy of the education in the way that's taught at the moment. I kind of liken it to um, we're, we're kids with an iPad. So, you know, the long car trips and there's parents in the front who don't want to hear the kids and um, the kids are in the back saying, Mum and Dad, look at this iPad. That's the way that sometimes it feels dealing um, with university sometimes. But I think ANU's taken a real big, big step, and they've said that they've learned the iPad, they've decided to work with us, and now that's helping us learn in great ways. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, now on to finally. Thank you. You know, after listening to uh, Cam, all I have to do is just listen to him, and you still want to have lectures. So, uh, <laughs> so look at it this way. So imagine a kid, so, uh, you know, a, a child, you know, from the two or three years old, they've started uh, using iPads and, and uh, electronic content. And by the time they're 10 or 12, they are tweeting and, and, and uh, Facebooking and so on and Snapchatting. And, and how are they doing it? So they have this iPad or, or mini iPad or the phone. Um, my daughter's 14, you know, I'm, I'm picturing her right now. And the typical millennial, uh, you know, student, lying in bed, legs up in the air, you know, with the white headphones, uh, you know, shutting out the parents' sounds and all that stuff. With iPad, and then you know, watching some multimedia action. You know, it could be anything. You know, switching around, and you know, while it's going on, at the same time having a little chat session, social interaction with friends, and so on on the side. And I promise you, one day I saw her with three screens: an iPad, a smartphone, 
and a laptop. She was you know, doing homework on one, chatting on the other, watching a movie and doing some crystal quest on the side. And I said, you know, I said, you're nuts. I mean, how can you, you know, how can you do this? She said, Dad, this is a new generation. You know, you, you, guys, you guys don't understand. You guys can't do this. We can. <laughs> and so, so we, we just don't understand it anymore. I mean, they, they, it's a new generation. And so, so they've grown up in this culture. They can do all of these things and interaction and multimedia and, yeah, and they get it. Now they come to college. And what do we do? We stick them in neat little rows like corn stalks. We have them, you know, chained to their seats. They can't move. They you know, can't do anything. They can't lie in bed with the legs up in the air. Uh, you know, they're listening to, uh, what did you say? Uh, this, uh, this old guy here, you know, with white hair and so on, droning on and on. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, <laughs> so just contrast the two. You know, a 14-year-old girl lying in bed, you know, snacking with crumbs all over the bed and, you know, <laughs> having chat sessions and, you know, having fun and video. And then they come to college and listening to somebody drone on and on for 50 minutes, tied to the seats. What do you think they're going to do? They're not going to show up to lecture. And so uh, you know, I'll give you stats at MIT. Um, at MIT, on average, by the time the second half of uh, typical courses come around, you'll be lucky. Attendance is not compulsory. You'll be lucky if 20 to 30% of uh, students show up to lecture. And there was uh, one instructor who shall remain nameless who showed up to the lecture one day, and there was nobody in his class. So what would you do? If you're a professor, you come to class, and nobody's there, what do you do? Do you lecture? <laughs> well, I mean, well, what do you do? I mean, you've got, you got to do your job, but there's nobody there. So uh, nobody showed up, so I mean, wh what do you do? So, so this is a new generation. And so I think, I think it's time that we, uh, that we changed ourselves and uh, you know, we tried to get information across in a way that they cared about. I'll give you my own story. You know, I was an undergraduate at IIT Madras. Uh, all the kids around me were just way smarter than I was, just way smarter. So I'm sitting there, and professor, this is a physics class going on and on. And, and by the, around the fourth or fifth minute, I would lose the professor. I think, I think four or five was my magic number. And uh, I was just not smart enough, and professor would be going really fast, hammering over the board. And everybody else was nodding and, you know, seemed, seemed to understand it. And I would lose them at, at five minutes. And then after that, uh, you know, I was lost. I would just sit down scribbling, taking notes, hoping I would, you know, ask my friends or colleagues, uh, or students, and say, hey, help, help me understand this later. So five minutes was when I would, uh, would lose it. Then I would say to myself, why bother going there? So I stopped going to lecture. And uh, I knew another student, uh, his name was Guru Raj Singh. First bench, he would take notes. And I would use his notes, and, uh, and I would uh, you know, just get his notes and look at his notes. We didn't have video in those days. This was uh, the late 70s. So I would get his notes. And soon, uh, there'd be three guys going to class. Guru Raj Singh was one of them. He wrote really good notes. And the rest of us uh, would, uh, you know, he would, uh, so he would go to class. And then at night, he would put his notes. Uh, he slept early. And he would put his notes, uh, each of us had a little dorm room. He would put his notes on the window. And we had a chain letter. So each of us would grab his notes and then you know, copy them down and pass them on. And so all, all night we copied his notes. And then uh, I mean, that's, that's what we did before video became uh, popular. But today, you, know, you, you can record the lectures and do all of this stuff. You know, why, why bother going to lecture? Now, I mean, there are, you can do much better than that. You can use the Socratic method as a teacher, which I try to do in my classroom, where every five or seven minutes, you, know, you ask a question. Um, you know, so let me ask you, so, you know, uh, do you get much more engaged if a professor 
you know, asks questions and engages you as opposed to sitting there droning on and on. And the Socratic method is much better. So, so why can't we do that and just do it online? Interleave uh, short videos with interactive exercises. And in fact, uh, give them instant feedback, like, uh, like you said, where they get a little green check mark if they get something right. You don't have to wait two weeks to get to collect your homeworks, if at all. I still have homeworks that I never got back. And so now, with a green check mark, you get instant feedback and watch a short video, get instant feedback. It's, it's a lot of fun. And in fact, there's one student uh, in our online class. Um, he, he took the class. And then uh, he, he took a class from uh, a software as a service class from Berkeley. And I still have his quote from the discussion forum where he said, uh, when he got a green check mark, he said, uh, oh, God, have I missed you in a follow-on class about the green check marks. So, so the green check mark, the instant feedback symbol, uh, is really becoming you know, somewhat of a cult symbol within, within edX. and really says that students are looking for that instant feedback, that interactivity, the social interaction. And so, so I, I really think that the day of the lecture is over. I think a new university is being built. I think get rid of the lecture hall and find other ways of uh, uh, working with students. Now, before I open it up, I'm going to be a bit provocative. I, I agree with you, and maybe that's something we need to think about. It's so nice to be aspirational, but the truth is actually that day to day, I feel like I'm living in the valley of PowerPoint death. So, you know, how does a university go about transitioning itself to the kind of thing, if we agree that that's what we're going to do? How do you transition to that? So, Andrew, what are your thoughts? Well, PowerPoint is can kill in many ways, but... I think used properly. Very accessible tool for students to use, and um, with laptops, mobile phones, and iPads, you can collaborate on the production of a, of a PowerPoint in real time. Am I losing my sound a bit? Um, Your microphone keeps disappearing. You're not allowed to move. You have to stop moving. You're too animated. That's the problem. <laughs> you need to sit very still while stop you're lecturing there. ahead, Andrew. <laughs> um, look, I, I think there's always a role for the, for the conventional lecture, um, but I think it, it has to be part of a much wider array of options. I think lecturers, academics need to feel empowered, resourced, skilled to be able to explore those other options. And I think the key shift we need to make in making this transition is to overcome the anxiety that producing online material is very onerous and involves a great deal more work than teaching in a conventional way. I think, yes, there's some particular bursts of effort required, but I think it can be enormous fun um, creating online material. And I think the extent to which we can create that cultural shift, that this is a great way to Fun, sorry about the head, um, then I think we'll move a long way towards achieving Cam, are we going too slow? Um, look, I think that students are, are moving past it anyway. They've made transition. Like a lot of students, like I've heard and I've done this as well, being like, look, I'd rather just do the course in two weeks. I do an intensive, I'll sit down and listen to all the lectures and I'll take it as it comes. So I think students in a way have already kind of made that transition. Um, something interesting on PowerPoint is that uh, I too share the hate for PowerPoint. I mean, we all know the text and all the text that should just be written down and people just drone and read off there. I actually refused to use a PowerPoint for a PowerPoint presentation I had for art history last year. And um, I actually worked with the tutor and I did okay in, in the end. So 
there is some, there seems to be some kind of flexibility within it, but overall it seems to be like it, it is part of our, like it's still part of our education. Is it going to be easy to get there, Paul? You've experienced this quite a different experience filming a lecture, a green screen, you've got no lectern in front of you, you've got no notes, you can't hold your laptop. We've got now apocryphal stories of filming our MOOCs, <laughs> wrenching laptops out of the hands of lecturers as they stand up there and do green screen. It's a, a very interesting experience trying to uh, put one of these things together. Um, we do some of our filming on um, a green screen down in the basement of the Chancery, and um, this is me and Brian Schmidt, so we're trying to figure out how do we actually film a clip. And our first attempt was we thought we had two people, so one of us is going to play the dumb sidekick, and the other one's going to play Sherlock, so Sherlock and Watson. <laughs> uh, Brian, of course, is Sherlock and me and Watson. Um, <laughs> well, the idea was we'd swap every ten minutes. Um, it, and then and one of the things about an online course is you can, you can often beta test things. So we filmed a whole bunch of clips like this, and we ran it past everyone else. That God, that's awful. It's so artificial. There's a lot of so, Brian, why did you say that? <laughs> ah! <laughs> uh, so eventually we ended up with a, a style which is more or less us talking to each other. So a two-person presenter model, which seemed to work quite well, and a semi-scripted. But everyone seems to converge on a different platform. I mean, for example, uh, Kim has been working with the front row. He has been working with the um, Asian um, course, and I think they were running much more scripted than we are. Different people have different things. Some people actually have a little group of three people in the back, and they will lecture to them. <laughs> Some people will actually be filmed in a lecture, so there's an audience. Um, so I think we're still experimenting with how we do this. I mean, the, probably the key scary lessons are it's more work than you think um, if you wanted to give it a fairly high production value. For a normal lecture, you've got no real choice on production value. You go in there and talk 15 minutes, there's not much difference. But for a video clip, there's an immense difference from you know, a wobbly webcam sitting as you work on front of the blackboard up to your BBC documentary standards with a corresponding difference in budget. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the trouble is where you sit in that spectrum. If you just want to put something very quickly together with a tablet, it's very cheap and very easy. If you want it to look slick and be a good publicity for the university for 10,000 people, it's going to take longer and be more painful than you can imagine. Inga, you hang around lots of PhD students who are academics of the future. Is it moving too slowly for them? What's your sense on their view on? What's funny, I think, is that the closer that the, academic, uh, the PhD students approach being a, a full-blown academic, the more they seem to want to conform to those ways that people are doing things. So they look to, to, their, they look to their elders, you know, and most, sorry, most of you are elder. 50% um, of you are over 50. And they look at, look at the you. elders <laughs> and they think, oh, well, I need to do it like that. And um, I mean, of course, there's people that buck that trend. But I think it speaks to something really deep, and that's the identity work around being an academic. And the way that an academic will tell you that they don't want to do something is the first thing they'll say is that they don't have time. And of course, that's a very easy thing to explode. Um, even around Twitter, if someone will give me five minutes, I'll tell them why they don't have time not to do it and why you appear smarter if you actually open yourself up to these forms of, you know, um, uh, of information flows. But I think that the, the, this, this habitus that we have as, as academics, and there's an almost a certain show pony quality in getting up and doing a lecture. Come on, admit it, we love it, <laughs> don't we? I mean, I love it. I, I love to stand at a lecture and, you know, and you can probably feel if you're doing it, if you're really in your zone and you're hitting your mark, and even if people are bored, there's some sort of thrill in being the one who's holding the floor, who gets to speak and no one else can talk back. Don't we all love that? I mean, how much do we get that in our lives? So I think we get attached to these um, 
ways of operating. And I think that um, unless we recognise sometimes that people have good and logical reasons why they hang on to things, we will never get them to think about things differently. So recognising that the lecture is by its essence quite a shambolic technology and easily hacked and easily changed and very easy to perform. It's a low bar of entry to do it badly. It's a high bar of entry to do it well. But to do it badly, you can do you can scrap a one together. And if you're kind of academic who feels like, oh, I just want to spend all my time researching, actually lectures are quite efficient. And I, I had lecturers in my undergraduate years who used to slap around their slide carousels. Remember those? And they, you know, put their carousels in and and then they, you know, and it was just, they were like a human tape recorder. You just press play on their chest. They didn't have to think about it at all. And I think these other forms of um, engagement, Twitter, blogging, they do require real intellectual effort. And, they, and there's no doubt about it that that does take time away from other things. I do, a, I do research. I want to be seen as a serious academic. I write my papers, but it's not where my heart is. I love my blogs. I love my Twitter. I love my engagement activities. But, so I'm the opposite. I, I want to... Papers take away from that, but a lot of people I recognise are the other way around. And understanding them first, I think, is the key, and respecting them. So a final question for Anant before we open <coughs> the floor. Anant, what's the sweet spot? What's the perfect lecture? What's the data telling you at edX? You've got lots of data. What's the right length for a lecture? What do we know about a good lecture? Because you've got really large data sets that can tell us some things that we didn't know before. So what advice have you got for us about the length of a lecture and kinds of things that you're seeing on the data? Well, first of all, you know, we are uh, replacing... Lecture stands for you know, transmitting content. And uh, so we are replacing lectures with what we call learning sequences, which where, where, where you know, programmatically we replace this 50 minutes spouting of content with uh, interaction interleaved with uh, transmittal of content through videos. So lecture gets, first of all, turned into a learning sequence where students go through a sequence of uh, activities. They get some content through a video, and then they get some, some exercise or assessment. They go have some discussions. Then we look at the videos. So videos are what are used to transmit content. The question is, how long should your video be? And so one of the things we can do with online is, rather than guesswork, where, you know, previously we would use uh, subjectivity. You know, we'd give people forms and say, fill out a form. Are you engaged, not engaged, whatever. But now with online tools, we can measure how long did people watch a video? When did they switch to something else? Uh, at what speed did they watch it and things like that? So we have this big data of learning. And so there was a study that Philip Gore did with uh, edX videos from uh, a number of universities, Berkeley, MIT, and others. And he looked at uh, five million video watching sessions uh, on, on edX. And what he discovered was when he plotted video length versus the amount of time people actually watched it, he found that the, max, the, the ideal length was six minutes. That is, if a, if a video was a length six minutes, then students would watch it all. Once it went beyond six minutes to about 10, 15 minutes, the watching actually went down. And by the time a video got to 40, minute, 40 minutes, people were watching it for three minutes. So, so it looks like six minutes uh, was kind of the magic number that he came up with uh, for, uh, for, his, uh, for his measurements. Thank you. I'm now going to open it up. I believe we've got microphones about, so if you have got a question, if you just raise your hand. I can't see you all very clearly, so forgive me if I don't know your name. Up there, just on the right-hand side. So. Oh, you have to come down, so if you wouldn't mind just <laughs> popping down, and if you want to get in line to ask a question, just come on down now and ask your question. Thank you very much. 
So I'm slightly interested in the, um, the economic model behind this. If, take FAM for example, you can now study computer science at Harvard. You can study a lot of your content uh, uh, at various sources around the world, and the content is free on the internet now. Um, you're paying a substantial amount of hex, and the government is paying a substantial amount of money for you to come to ANU. What are you getting for your money? What's the business model? So, uh, so there's two parts. I think your question was, uh, what do you get for your money or for your taxes at ANU? Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to really separate two things. Uh, so one is you take a MOOC, you can get the content, you can learn about some stuff, and you don't, if you don't have access to campus, that's a pretty darn good way of learning about something. But uh, on campus, uh, you know, my, my colleague, uh, Professor Sanjay Sarma at MIT, uh, he says there's a magic on campus. And you get many other things on campus. You, know, you get to learn uh, you know, through late night discussions and uh, you know, imbibing various kinds of uh, you know, fluids and inhalants and so on. You, know, you, you, get, you, you get to uh, interact with other students and you get to learn rhetoric and you learn how to work with other people. You work with professors, you learn about research, you learn how to collaborate. Uh, so it, it's a rite of passage. So there's a number of other things that you get on campus which uh, I'm hard pressed to imagine we could replicate in a MOOC. So that said, I think the campus is very valuable to students. <coughs> And the question to ask ourselves, particularly in the US, um, today, you know, one year of campus uh, costs uh, in, in most universities on the order of $40,000 to $44,000, American dollars, although the Australian dollar is catching up. So, so, so the real danger there is that you know, how, do you, uh, how many people can afford that? So I think, the, I think there is magic on campus. The question is, you know, can, we, uh, you know, can, can a lot of students afford it? So I think what we will see, we will see a gradation of values if you can get access to campus, you know, it, is, it is the place to be. We can improve campus as well through blended models of learning. And for those students who don't have access to a campus, they can still do things online. So I think we will see a spectrum of, uh, of, of activities. Paul, why do you think ANU? Why did you want to do it? Um, online courses. Mm, the MOOCs, yeah. Why did you want to do that? Um, I guess my motivation was if for any sort of public activity you do, there's um, there's a spectrum. You get, for example, supervising a PhD student where you get their full time for at least three years, um, through to a 15 second appearance on ABC TV news where you get you know, a million people for 15 seconds. And if I looked at all the different things I was doing up and down the spectrum, um, the actual amount of brain hours I was engaging in education was very similar up and down the spectrum. So small number of people, huge amount of involvement, large numbers, not very much. But it seems that the online stuff is breaking that. And so instead of being roughly flat in terms of you multiply the number of seconds of people's attention against the number of students and more or less flat up and down the spectrum, um, what started me off was I gave a public lecture um, here at ANU about three years ago, which was put on the ANU YouTube channel and went viral, has now been viewed over 800,000 times. And that's a bigger educational output than anything else I will do in my lifetime, except possibly this edX stuff. And so, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do it? It doesn't necessarily answer the economic question. The funding model is still a, a very problematic, and maybe Alan can talk a bit about that for the funding model for MOOCs. Um, but you know, I want to change people's brains as much as possible, and it looks like these online methods are vastly more effective. I can have more effect on more people by this technique by orders of magnitude than anything else I can do at the university. Andrew? Just a very specific comment on, on funding model and how we might handle the MOOC in, in our college. We're, we're, we've got the Engaging India MOOC. We, my intention is that we set up a course, Asia 3000 and whatever, which is Engaging India. The content of that course would be the MOOC, 
plus. And the plus is exactly the sorts of things Anant was talking about, the interaction with experts who've been involved in the production of the MOOC, in seminars, workshops, additional readings, some additional forms of assessment, uh, perhaps even getting students involved in production of material that could feed into the next iteration of the MOOC. So I think, the, once again, once you start to think about these things and, and break down the, the rigid distinction between our outreach activities and our education activities, then I think you can think about the business models creatively and more sustainably. A lot of people have asked me about the business model. There must be the most, one of the most common questions you get asked, and not my simple response is actually, show me the business model for everything a university does. I think it's even more, uh, yeah, I, I will answer the question about business model, but before that, um, <laughs> you know, the joke is that, uh, particularly in the US, uh, universities have been around for uh, you know, um, hundreds of years. They still haven't figured out a business model. So they, I mean, they're, they're still on fumes, I and mean, they're still running on philanthropy. There is no business model. They're not self-sustaining. But that said, you know, with, uh, with MOOCs, uh, we do have uh, many ideas for a business model. And like with any startup organization, we're trying out a number of things. And, and we are seeing some good ideas already. I'll give you three examples uh, very quickly. We have a business to a consumer approach, a business to business, and a third one, which a reporter called business to nation. <laughs> so business to consumer. Uh, there, you can uh, do a MOOC course for free. But if you want to get a verified certificate, so uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the course by uh, you know, Paul <coughs> and, and colleagues has a verified certificate. So if you want to have an ID verified and get a verified certificate, you pay a small fee. Is it 50 bucks or 100 bucks? $50. And so there, um, so you know, as a number of students uh, take these courses, some of them sign up for a verified cert. Um, you get some revenue, and edX will share that revenue with uh, our university partners. So that is business to consumer. A second is we're also piloting another business to consumer. Um, we are piloting an executive education course as a pilot with, uh, on a big data course. And, uh, and again there, because of our marketing clout, we've been able to get uh, thousands of people to enroll and, and it's $500 fee for an exec ed course. And so you know, that could be a very promising approach, executive education, where people pay a fee for certain particular kinds of uh, courses. A second model is business to business, where so let's say we have a physics course or an engaging India course. What we can also do is the other universities around the world or other platforms around the world that want to license these courses. It's like a new age textbook. So they come to edX and say, hey, look, can I license that course? So we go license the course to them and they pay us a fee. And so that is a business to business approach where businesses and, uh, and others want to license the course. And the third model is business to nation. So uh, many countries are adopting the open edX uh, uh, platform. So like uh, uh, China adopted uh, open edX. And they want to license courses not just within a university, but for entire populations. And they're willing to pay a fee uh, to license these courses. And again, that's a business to nation um, approach. So these are just three or four examples of ways in which we can produce revenue that can sustain operations, both at edX, which is a nonprofit, and at universities like ANU and others that are also spending significant amount of uh, resources to create these high quality moves. Okay, do we have another question? Can I, can I just oh, speak okay. to that yeah. point lastly though? I mean, the universities themselves, as you say, they, they, the government intricately linked to it. I think the question about the business model hits more at the individual lecturer level. And I think that's something we need to take very seriously. And there's a lot of anxiety out there. And people say to me, so Inga, you know, I'm a casual lecturer. What does this move do? Is this threatening me? And I would, I would honestly say to those people, yes. And here's why. 
Um, in maths, um, for example, a, a year, um, sorry, an undergraduate level of maths back in the 1950s, I believe, is now taught at year eight. Okay, so we've kind of accelerated what, we've pushed down the level of, um, I'm not putting this very well, if you know what I mean. So what we expect of a year eight is what we used to expect of an undergraduate, okay? So I think what we're, if I looked in a crystal ball, I think one of the possible outcomes here is that you have Statistics 101, you have Politics 101, you have all these 101 courses that you'd be expected to do before you go to university. And so at university, actually, the bar gets raised higher. Personally, I'm very excited about that. And what I say to my fellow colleagues is, yeah, okay, so you get the first job and you teach Statistics 101. You should be aiming higher than that. You should be aiming to be the person who's teaching something very specialised about this or that or the other thing. And that's where the university lecturers will start to really add value, that we'll be just moving at the bar a little bit higher. That's what I really see. So when I, when I talk to my colleagues about their own professional development, I talk about the, the need for professional identity to really be offering something different, to be offering something new, and the importance of research. And that's why so at ANU we're so lucky because we're so research heavy and we, we get that specific, extended, very detailed knowledge end of the business. So I don't think ANU is in any trouble, but I think if someone's thinking that they can teach Statistics 101 for the rest of their career, I think they will be in trouble. Okay. John. Thanks, Marnie. <coughs> Before I sound like too much of a stodgy old droner, um, I, would, <laughs> I would like to say that uh, I have been a lecturer and researcher for many years, and in the last 12 months I've become rather an avid consumer of MOOCs, and I've enjoyed them a great deal. Um, I think the blended learning environment, at least to me at the moment, is one that is extremely important. Um, however, I was slightly disturbed, which is why I want to, would like to ask this question, for, by two comments. Uh, made by the panel. So I'd like to delve into them a little bit. One of them was the example given by Anant, which I thought was very interesting, uh, of a 14-year-old girl with uh, uh, a whole lot of information coming in and doing the homework and watching this and doing this and so on, one comment. Second comment was the instant green feedback tick from CAM saying that students have already made this transition to this mode of operation. One of the things I've noticed over many years uh, with students, uh, and it's accelerating, is what I regard as a confusion between the gathering of information through content delivery and value adding to that information through deep thought and serious consideration of the issues behind it. The question I have then is the following. Marnie asked the question, are we getting there fast enough earlier to panel members? And my question is what I think is a, an important one is, well, where on earth are we trying to get, number one? What are we trying to produce in terms of undergraduate education? Where do MOOCs fit with this? Um, are we really blowing up the lecture or are we really supplementing it with other material? And more than that, if we're not vigilant, in my opinion, regarding the difference between content consumption and really deep and considered thought and communication, is the green tick and the enormous amount of information that people are apparently parallel processing, which I have my huge doubts over, is this just reinforcing a bad direction in education. Okay, so I'm going to go to another person, then I'm going to ask Cam to reply. Huh. Sure, so, uh, so the green tick mark sort of gives you instant gratification and brings a gaming element into learning. Now, it's really up to the professor as to how you use the green tick mark. So in the course that I taught, by the way, I completely agree with you that uh, this barrage of information and so on is a bad thing. But, but yeah, I'm 54. What do I know? 
I, th I think the trains left the station. I mean, the, the, you know, we can try to change and say, look, you know, we're going to stop that. But that's that's the that's life today. You know, it's tough. I, I don't think we can change that anymore. Um, that said, as we teach and so on, we can use the medium to our advantage. So uh, for certain kinds of questions in the course that I taught, for example, we have short questions and uh, uh, you know, we get them to answer, they get instant feedback. But in, in, in ho we have exercises and homeworks. In homeworks and quizzes and exams, we actually give them much deeper questions. And, uh, and there we tell them, look, here's a question. We want you to uh, think through it and uh, either write an essay or write, uh, you know, give us uh, an equation or something else that you come up with at the very end. And it's not intermediate steps, but you have to spend three days and then you, you, you enter an answer or you enter uh, an essay or something like that. So, so it's up to you as an instructor. Uh, do you want to have them go through some things quickly or do you want to have them spend a day or two uh, thinking through uh, various things? Maybe go to the discussion forum, have discussions, and then come up with the design of various sorts. So there are multiple modalities in terms of getting that. We also have online labs. In the online labs, we have them design a circuit, and then they have to submit their whole design. And we, we check the design based on the output that it produces, um, and, and do not look at you know, very small steps. So really, it's up to the instructor as to how you use the medium. Um, and uh, you know, if you don't like to give instant feedback, you know, just have them think for three days and then ask them for something. It's really up to you how you use the medium. Cam, where do you think we ought to be going? <coughs> So I guess like throughout history, um, we've gone from information being held by few now to all the information being held by anyone. And that's the way that, uh, and that's what we're trying to, I guess, like adapt to. And I completely agree with you that, um, you know, that I, I am too skeptical about the green, the green tick, you know, that being like, oh, I've got my university education done, I've got the green ticks. I think it's, it's about freeing up the resources we have now because I guess MOOCs and, and changing the way lectures are currently delivered frees up resources at the university for very different things, which is what we're talking about and also what touches on the last question, which is what is the importance of university now? Things like communication, things like uh, leadership skills, these kinds of things you're never going to get through a MOOC, unfortunately, and will still be uh, not accessible to all. But that's something that we should that universities can take advantage of having more resources to put towards that. So yeah, I agree, I think we have to be skeptical of you know, instant, um, like instant gratification, and like Anant said, it is about how these tools are used, but it's great to have more tools to use. So I've got a slightly longer queue on this side than this side, so I'm gonna to go to this side again. We've got our next question, then I'll come over to this side. Thanks, my question's about uh, scalability, <coughs> and um, how we were talking before about um, a lot of courses being death by PowerPoint and the ideal course in an online context having a six minute video, then learning sequences and whatnot. So looking at those two sort of extremes, from institutional point of view, how do you um, facilitate that kind of scalability? What sort of resources do you think is appropriate and necessary so that we can not just have a few exceptional courses, two exceptional MOOC courses, but how do we actually scale that to a much broader context and facilitate change across uh, the entire campus? It's an excellent question that we're grappling with. I'm gonna go to Paul first and then I might ask Andrew and then an to answer if you don't mind. Um, I wish I knew. Um, I think, as I was saying earlier, there's a whole spectrum of what level you produce these courses at. And if you want them to look really slick, I mean, I think the reason many universities are investing in these first few MOOCs is to publicize the university, and therefore the strict instructions I get from Marnie, this one needs to look fairly good. Um, if not, it's being, not David Attenborough, though. Not, but not David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't give me that much money. Uh, um, 
If you're producing, I've been producing your know, webcasts and things for use in our pre-labs to train the students before they come to the labs, and I will generate those things on an iPad in about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly produce a lot of the stuff very easily without much more time than a conventional lecture once you've got this, a, a skill set, which actually many of us already have from other, other things we do in our spare time. So it's not obvious to me the resources needed if you're happy with a, a, a lower level of slick. The students don't seem to mind. The students don't seem to care about whether it looks like David Attenborough or something rough. So I think it's actually um, probably not things you'd want to go out for millions in the world. I think it's a bit of an arms race going on in MOOCs to try and get the quality really high because it's being primarily seen as a means for marketing universities. But for educational purposes, I don't think you need that. And it's actually not that hard to do. The main trouble, I, to my mind, is if you flip the classroom and have lots of these online stuff across all of university, um, you still need to have the, something that's to build the social networks between the students, all the things you've been hearing about, and how we do that. Because very often, the lecture is a relatively cheap thing to do, whereas tutorials, labs, discussion sections are more expensive. It's a much worse or better, depending on your point of view, student-to-staff ratio. We don't have the rooms on campus to do it. And so the real issue is not so much resourcing, producing videos and web stuff and so on. That's not very expensive. It's if the lecturer's gone, the core of the university experience starts to be these other things we do. And these are very diverse across campus. And we need to do them much better if that's what the university is all about. And for that, we're going to need better pedagogy and better classroom spaces um, and possibly even more money because they're more expensive. Andrew, you not only have been involved in the MOOC in College of Asia and the Pacific, you've also been uh, driving languages going online. Yeah. Look, look, I think the issue of, of scalability often focuses on the production of video and, and lecture stuff. And, and, you know, once again, as we said before, this is all about the level of production values you're aiming for, but at a, at a fairly simple level of production value, if you are worried about producing video for, for any sort of course, including language courses, like the basic tools are, are just here, like a, a, good, a good quality smartphone or an iPad, so, and then moving up to a simple video camera to put together a short six-minute video is, is not that difficult. And in our college, we're thinking about um, setting up number of rooms in different parts of the college with, with little labs, video labs, where people can just go in a, and record video and, and have PowerPoint linked to that. So just to enable people to be able to do this quickly and easily. Um, but I suppose my, my, I think the more important point is there's enormous amount of stuff already there. Why do we keep producing new stuff? We are recording the same lectures every time, every year. We have the digital material there. We have guest lectures being um, prepared. We have podcasts. We have lecturers doing television interviews, radio interviews. We are producing material all the time. Why aren't we curating this much more effectively into lectures? And uh, what's been your observation about production values? What do, you, what do students go for in terms of, you know, the David Attenboroughs of the world versus the Sal Khan observations? What, what's your experience? So one of the things that, uh, so we did an experiment. Uh, this was with, uh, with a course that uh, my colleagues and I taught about a couple of years ago, uh, the first LX MOOC. And uh, I was doing cheap tablet capture Khan style videos. Uh, uh, they're pretty decent production value, I think, but but uh, there's no camera, there were no videographers, camera people, and so on and so forth. I was just uh, sitting in my pajamas uh, with, the, with the beer in my hand and you know, hammering out, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a, a scratching out handwritten, you know, Khan style videos. And uh, so, what uh, a Microsoft researcher did 
was they took my videos, they took my scratchy handwriting, and they turned that into beautiful, you know, uh, as, as I wrote, it would turn into text, you know, like PowerPoint text and so on. So Microsoft did that. And then they did an A-B test with the students and said, take a vote. Do you like this video of Anand, or do you like this other video, which is much better production quality, with, you know, things looking nice and neat and, you know, with PowerPoint text and so on. And what was amazing was that by a four-to-one majority, people, students preferred the, uh, the scratchy handwriting. And, and, and what they said was it felt, that it felt much more personal. And uh, although they did complain that they said Agarwal take a handwriting class. <laughs> but, uh, but that said, I mean, they, they still preferred that to the much higher production quality. So I think the lesson we are learning mm. is that uh, I would say if you, if you ask me that the instructor, the passion of the instructor and, and you know, how good they are at explaining things and so on, I would say that is 80% of the value. And then the production quality adds 20% onto it. So, you know, you've heard this phrase, you know, put lip lipstick on a pig. Uh, you know, that's the, the lipstick is a 20%. But fundamentally, you have to get the, uh, you have to get uh, someone who's very passionate about teaching and really engaging the students. And that's what the students like. Uh, uh, the production quality is good. We should do the Attenborough stuff. But, uh, but that said, if it wasn't Attenborough, if it was me, it would still not be very good, no matter what, uh, <laughs> no, no matter how good the production quality was. So, so that's one part. The second part is how do you scale it across the university? And the answer to that is tools and training, the two Ts, which is that we can do, uh, tablet capture is very powerful. For those of you who watched uh, Khan Academy, you, you don't need anything. You just need a, a $1,200 Lenovo tablet, you know, and just hammer it out. It takes some time to practice and, and hammer it out and you can produce videos. Uh, we are working with Microsoft, and, uh, and uh, please don't tweet this, but uh, uh, this is, uh, so, uh, so next month you will hear something from um, Microsoft with edX will help uh, to look at ways in which existing uh, programs can be tweaked to uh, produce uh, uh, videos and so on in a much scalable, much more scalable manner. So we'll produce new tools where people should be able to hammer these out themselves without needing videographers and camera people and expensive rooms and so on. And so, uh, so I think we will create newer, newer and better tools to be able to scale this. And then training. I think uh, we need to train professors. But then again, you know, we never train professors in teaching. You know, I was thrown into my first lecture, and I stood there, I've never lectured before, and I was like a deer in front of headlights in my class. So we never did that before. So, but I think we can do better now. We can train people on how to do uh, different kinds of, uh, use the media in clever ways in, in terms of teaching. We can, we can do training as well. Mm. Okay, on this side, it's Tom. Um, Tom Worthington from the Research School of Computer Science. Following up that last point on training, um, my question is whether the university and its academics are prepared to put in the amount of time and resources needed to learn this new form of education. Um, I'm called an adjunct lecturer, but I gave up lecturing four years ago. It's taken me a large chunk of that time to get comfortable with teaching online. The university provided me with general education in how to teach and how to supervise. But to learn how to design and deliver online, I had to go to other universities and pay thousands of dollars and spend much time in online classes learning this new craft. Uh, and I'm just getting comfortable with it now. Um, is the ANU and are its academics willing to put in the hard yards to make this form of education work? Inga, what do you think? You're hanging around again, those future academics. Yeah. I'm, I'm tempted, I'm thinking of that line, and I'll just be gender specific for a moment. 
that you can teach a man to fish or you can teach him to love the sea. And if you teach him to love the sea, then he'll teach himself to fish. And, and I say this with love, because I do love academia and academics, a lot of them don't love technology. If you love technology, it's ne you're never learning a day in your life, you're playing. And I know that's a kind of Pollyanna-ish answer, and it's probably not what academics want to hear, because sometimes we're angry about the level of resourcing that we get generally. And we generalise this anger into all sorts of areas, of, and I think we should take that seriously. But I also think that there's certain, uh, there is a certain attitudinal shift. Now, I'm, I'm doing a MOOC next. It's the seven vices of supervision. Greed, envy, lust, pride, it's gonna be fun. Um, and uh, we had to write a project plan for money, and I, I just have no idea how to do this, no idea. So I thought, well, what should we do? We just went round, we talked to Paul, didn't we? We sat at Paul's feet. We talked to the cat people, we talked to Kim. We're trying to absorb everything we know. And what I, gen I actually realised is that my previous career as an architect is the most valuable training for this. As an architect, I did the architectural pornography. I did animations and billboards and all the advertising. So my, my skills in Photoshop and stuff are dormant but can easily be activated. And, and one thing that Paul pointed out to me is you just end up with a lot of videos in your desktop and you've got to learn to name them the right way. I thought, oh, well, I've had that problem before. And so I think um, increasingly our, our teaching staff is coming from other professional backgrounds or they have what's euphemistically called a portfolio career, you know, where they're doing a bit of teaching, they're making ends meet in all sorts of other ways. And I think we're all learning these things that can be transferred into that teaching. So, it's not a great answer. I'd love to say, hey, let's, let's just throw thousands of dollars at it. But I'm also a professional developer. And I put things on for PhD students. And I get 100, 100, 200 people saying, yeah, I'll come to that, great. And then on the day, how many do I get? Maybe 25%. So I think we need to hold up our end of the bargain as well, that if there is things offered, and we say we're going to go to them, and we need to commit and see this is an investment in ourselves. If not in the university, if that doesn't float your boat, it's an investment in yourself in terms of a future ready person because that's the world we live in. We don't have to like it, but we have to survive it. Cam, is this a question about the here and now? Or is this a question about what it is we hand on in terms of a future and new and inspiring and new? What's its legacy? I mean So I think it's it's a really important question. I think it's a big challenge to ANU as well. Like I'm happy to say to you that this is a challenge for you now in that like when I said my anecdote, people came and enjoyed their first lecture. I don't think it was a very good lecture, but they still enjoyed it. That's what you're competing against, that experience. Now, with MOOCs, with it all going online, you're not competing against the lectures you've been to or even the lectures in your university. You're competing against lectures all around the world. ANU has a commitment, uh, even their ANU 2020 plan, to improving education up to a certain amount. Um, I think it's about to get more competitive and there's going to be bigger things to compare against. Do People, do lecturers care, Andrew? Do they care? I think, of course they care. They care very deeply and people have different styles and different levels of comfort and, and, and different skills and all those things. But I suppose I'd make two comments, as Anant indicated. The environment in which students operate has changed and if we want to be active and effective academics, we have to adapt to that environment. It's an expectation as much as to be able to write coherently or read coherently, to be digitally agile has to become a standard expectation of an academic career. Um, at the same time, I agree, 
the university has to invest significantly in this. In, in, in our college, College of Asia and the Pacific, we have invested some millions of dollars over three to four years in establishing a digital learning development team. And I think to think that we're going to make this transition without having those specialists, that support, that at elbow support for academics making this transition is unrealistic. So not MIT, of course, has had a long track record in open courseware. It's, you know, it must have been surprising for MIT to be creating MITx and then edX. But Harvard, nobody thought that Harvard would be up in there doing online. So how does an institution like Harvard and, M and even MIT get into this space whereas previously everybody thought that online belonged to other universities and here it is, the Ivies get in there. What, what happened? You know, it's very interesting. Um, for the longest time, you know, online learning has been around for 30, 30 years, you know. Uh, but there was Phoenix University. But the joke was that 20 years ago, when people talked about online, they talked about Phoenix. And, uh, and, uh, and frankly, the quality wasn't there. I think many aspects of technology weren't there. And so it really gave online learning uh, a, a really, really bad rap. And, uh, in, and in fact, uh, <laughs> for those of you who watched my interview with, uh, with uh, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the talk shows, uh, Stephen Colbert, you know, he said, uh, he, you know, he said, uh, you know, well, Phoenix University has been doing what you're doing for, for decades, so what's, what's different here? So I think the, I think the big, big change that happened, happened about five or six years ago, and it wasn't that uh, ANU and MIT and Harvard and, and, and others were getting into it. A, a big change happened, which is that certain things in technology came together. It was like the, uh, you know, uh, like the perfect storm of technology. Um, one of them was video distribution, high quality video, you know, high def, high quality video could be distributed at scale. That, that was new. Cloud computing was new, which is that I could do all of these things in the cloud. And uh, I could have very, just have a browser and get access to content and get automatically graded and so on, and grow from three students to 100,000 students just by tweaking the cloud. So cloud computing was big. I think the third big part was social networking and Facebook where where students, you know, the students are growing up learning how to engage and tweet and text and WhatsApp and Snapchat and so on. And, and, and the social networking and technologies associated with that, they're also coming together. So I think these three or four technologies, cloud computing, social networking, uh, content distribution networks, I think these were fundamental shifts in technology that happened in the past decade, I would say five to six years. And this was also after open courseware. This, these did not exist before. And I think because of that, we've been able to dramatically ratchet up the quality of, uh, of online learning. And so today's online learning is not your grandfather's online learning. This is very, it's not just, it's not just a recording of lectures and make available the recording. It is, it is very different. And so uh, with interactive uh, assessments, we have discussion forums where right below a video, there's a discussion forum right below that and students are watching the video and having discussions with uh, a student in Pakistan or Australia or New Zealand and Colombia and they're all talking about stuff while they're watching the video, instant discussions. So I think all of these things have come together and I think that is what has changed. And because of that, the quality has become good enough that I think professors and, and administrators and students at all of these universities feel that this is the time when we, that quality is good enough that we can make a change. I think in the past, the quality was just not there. How does it take off in an institution? If you've got an institution that's not traditionally had track record in the space, uh, and then suddenly it's producing MOOCs, well, in your, looking at the consortium members, it's over 30 now, 
are you seeing any patterns in the way that things are taking off, how MOOCs grow within those institutions and how staff are getting into this space? I think there's one, I think there's one common factor across all of them. And in every single instance, I can point to one or two people within the university that said that, that, have, that are visionaries, that are innovators, and that are risk takers. And, and every university you can point to that small group. It could be one, it could be two. In some cases, it's a professor. In some cases, it is a university leader. In some cases, it could be a combination thereof. And they've gone in and, you know, in one case, it was a professor that the administration didn't believe it should be done. The professor said, God dang it, I'm going to do it. And really pressured the administration to do it. In the other case, it was the administration that said, look, we have to get behind this. Professors were not following them. And so an administrator would say, look, I'm going to create the course if you don't want to do it. But in every single instance, it starts off with one or two or three people that are on the bleeding edge, on the tip of the spear, so to speak, that really open up the, uh, the market. And then once you have two or three people, like the Paul Francis's and others, who say, look, we've got to do this. And once they have a good experience, then you get 40 proposals from a lot of people that say, look, this is not scary. This is a good thing. And then you have the second wave and the third wave. So I think it really starts with uh, one or two people. Now, it's telling us we've got quite a lot of uh, responses to our, our open call for the next generation of MOOCs. I'm going to go over to this side. Thanks very much. Um, I, I get a lot of, um, I, my name is Mariam Rashid, I'm a PhD candidate here, and uh, I get a, a sense that a lot of the material that I'm hearing today is all from the kind of university point of view about transfer of content and about uh, production of content that will be consumed perhaps with a broader reach. And, but I always think of social media, um, I think more radically in the sense that they transform the nature of authorities behind, for example, here in this context, education or in politics. They, they decentralize authority and, um, well, I, I guess I think that with a, with a program like edX, what I like to see in the future is uh, um, to see way, ways in which it can actually transform the nature of education provision altogether, the nature of university, what the university is, and not just how or how many people can be receiving this content. And um, as a student, I've gone to a lot of lectures that I've never enjoyed. I've never felt stimulated in the lectures. And I feel like some, le I have heard lecturers saying they don't have time to put a lecture together. Hmm. Two weeks before, they, they, lecture, lecturers are expected sometimes to lecture in courses that is not even their specialty. And so I think the, the radical potential of something like edX or these kind of technologies is that they, make learning and education more strategic. They, in a way, respect the time and intelligence of the students more in the sense that the students can choose what courses are suitable or uh, to what they need. And, uh, and so I'm concerned a little bit about the ways in which you are talking about this kind of videos and the ways in which, if people do not respond to videos, if they don't follow more than six minutes, these videos, so what's the difference between the conventional lecture that doesn't attract people and the videos that are still not attracting students? So, uh, thank So what's you. the disruptive potential of, of edX? And um, there was a recent announcement about edX uh, doing some work in Rwanda. So a lot of people say, is this just the, the rich playing around and fooling around because they can afford to? Is, is there your sense that this is going to make a difference in places where it does need to make a difference? 
Well, I think, uh, I think it's a very good question and, and really you know, causes one to pause and, and say, you know, what are we really doing here? Uh, are we really going to disrupt? Are we really going to change? Or uh, is this just uh, uh, you know, instead of boring lectures, we'll have boring videos? Um, I, think, uh, I think we're seeing many examples where, um, where as instructors use the videos and, and assessments and the quality material in the classroom as a new age textbook, uh, we are seeing more and more anecdotal examples at this point of uh, much better results from the students in terms of much better student engagement and much better student outcomes. So for example, at Berkeley, Professor Armando Fox taught uh, the software as a service course on campus. And uh, he plots a graph. And he shows that when he went from the traditional class that he has always been teaching to a blended class, he shows some amazing results. He lectures less, students watch videos and so on. You know what is amazing? The instructor rating went up. Instructor does different things in the classroom. Instructor rating went up. The class rating went up. Student scores went up. The number of students that could take the course went up. So what's not to like? So, uh, so, all of, so he has these numbers that show everything went up. In other examples, at San Jose State University, for example, they blended the classroom. And, uh, and traditionally in that class, 41, 40, 40 to 41% of the students would fail semester upon semester with the blended class and, and rethinking of education. Um, semester upon semester now in that experimental class, 9% of students fail. So we are seeing some positive results. But ultimately, I think what might be interesting is, uh, which I don't think you've got to, which is rather than us thinking of students as someone we give content to, I think the holy grail here might be, can we involve the students in creating the content? And I think that's what you were getting to, but never really, you know, you, you sort of never really got there. And, and I think that would be the, the, the ultimate coup if we could get the whole community to actually create the content. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, as Andrew mentioned, you know, uh, how do we get the content also being created from not just these, not just these people, you know, faculty, but, you know, across a broader group. And we've seen some examples of that. So, for instance, um, Professor Walter Lewin taught a physics course from MIT. And, and a sort of students got together and a wiki was, they all contributed content to a wiki. And guess what? They wrote a textbook. And, and, and he was very unhappy. He said, uh, he kept saying, wait a second, wait a second. There's a copyright issue here. Students have created a textbook. And I told them, celebrate it. I mean, this is huge. I mean, the students came up with a textbook based on the whole course. In another example, um, the professor did the sort of videos and so on, and all the videos were transcribed. And, and, and in two of these courses, textbooks came out of it. So I think my sense is that students get involved in the class and use the wikis and so on to create content. I think we need to find ways of folding that content back and, and, and celebrating that, celebrating the content creation. That will, that will take us to the next level. Last question on make, the side. Oh, sorry. Jump in with a very quick comment. I think we've got some technological constraints in moving beyond the discussion board as the main forum for student interaction. Um, very imperfect, but two years ago I experimented with using Facebook as the learning management system and in a way for students to be able to produce content, post content, comment on contact, content, treat the lecturer's material at the same level as their own material it had some pretty positive aspects. Okay, last question on this side. Hi, uh, I'm Anand, I'm, I'm working in the Engaging India MOOCs thing. Uh, I think, firstly I should say it's a great initiative that MIT and Harvard has taken. 
And I think we all know it's a big cultural change in the space of education, especially when we are targeting it internationally, because every country has their own education system. And I think you actually mentioned that while discussing about it, we all know that technology is something everyone is not comfortable with. And I think they're happy to use the technology. I think the question is the how to use it yourself. And I think that's where I'm observing academics are struggling. So here I think I'm very curious to know if MIT and Harvard already faced or saw these type of people in their university. And if you have, what sort of steps or trainings or anything that actually you organized to actually bring these people or together to bring this change? I think this question is for Anand. Okay. So I think the, uh, so we're trying a number of things and, 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 uh, and, and don't count, uh, count us professors down. I, th I, think we, we, I think we all can still learn. So, uh, so, uh, uh, so we're doing a number of things. I think it, it comes down to uh, there's, there's training involved in this. So one thing we've done is, uh, for those of you who've accessed edX Studio, which is our course authoring system, as part of that we created a course called edX 101, which is an online course on how to teach an online course. Mm -hmm. I thought there is no one style, but it just, it just uh, comprises our experiences. And our hope is that as more people teach, we will, we will crowdsource into that course and make that course a living, breathing uh, course. In fact, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you know, all of you, Inga and Andrew and Paul and others, as you, as you create these courses, create your own edX 101 or ANU uh, you know, 101 and so on courses that talk about your experiences in, in terms of how to teach um, online courses. And I think that would be really important so that others can see what you did and learn from that, uh, learn from that experience. Um, I think in terms of technology, I think technology is not the, not the hard part. Technology is easy. I think the hard part is the pedagogical part. How do you rethink teaching? There was, you know, uh, we, we have, we've sort of all grown up with a 50-minute or one-and-a-half-hour lecture. And, and, uh, and frankly, when I started that, it was really hard for me. I mean, it, it, took us, it took me years to learn that, and, uh, and I'm still not good at it. But, I think the new medium where we, where we have to teach, um, uh, where all of us have to teach in bite-sized chunks and, and, and then ask questions, it's, it's, it's a good old Socratic method. You know, Socrates knew about it and said, you know, you, you teach by asking questions. And that's what we're really saying. And, and it's really a new pedagogy. And I think that's the bigger challenge. You know, how, do you, how do you teach more effectively? So I think the technology is a small part of it. But teaching more effectively, uh, I think, is a bigger part. And traditionally, universities have not taught teachers how to teach. I've never, at MIT, for, as far as I know, there's, we've never had a teacher, I've never taken, you know, nobody takes teacher training. We just get thrown in and you do, you know, do something. I think for the first time, we're now seeing uh, professors and teachers asking to say, look, I want to learn, I want to do better. So I think it's a good thing, it's a new thing. Okay, and that's a, that's a positive note upon which to end. We're at two o'clock on the dot. Can you join me now in thanking all of the members of our panel for their time? <laughs> Anant is back this evening in conversation with Julie Hare and Brian Schmidt and Paulie are there as well? No, it's Brian Schmidt. It's in conversation this evening. That'll also be streamed for people. This, I believe, is being podcasted so you can download. If you want to go away, have a think about it and then tweet please do so, and this is the first of a number of talks that we'll have across the year. Again, join me in thanking all our guests, and particularly Anant Agarwal, who's come out, and we've stolen him away for the afternoon. Thank you very much, Anant. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>